over 100 episodes, nearly 100 hours. We'd come a long way, but there was still time for us to read and discover. With the Silver Age firmly in our sights, we decided to explore a reimagining of this new frontier. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible or repeatable finish. Oh yeah, Uh, so we've got a lot happening here. I know we may have hinted in previous episodes that we were going to do the Injustice storyline for this 101st episode. We decided to do something different. We went with The New Frontier, uh, written and drawn by Darwin Cook. Um, Remember, uh, folks, when you do your your inputs of uh, people and teams behind books, please credit your letterers and colorists. We are not able to find out who did that for this book, but we do know that Darwin Cook did the pencils, inks, and the writing for this book. Um, By book, we mean it is six individual 68-page issues that are all in a compendium or volume. Uh, chronicling one cohesive story so this i would i would say is a mini series or a maxi series i've always been unsure on what the definition between the two is but this is a, a not a full run this is probably one issue per month as it was coming out it sounds like we do know the colorist at least not the letterer but uh colors were by uh dave stewart who is just credited as also by <laughs> Uh, okay. rather than anything too specific. Uh, and it would... It's in this weird space. It is a miniseries. It's a six-issue miniseries. However, it's hard to call it a miniseries when every issue is 64 pages. Yeah, that's... It's it's a lot of, it's a lot of comic. And we're going to see that in the summary. Joanne, I promise I have written things down so I don't get a little off the you know the trail here but this is a very complicated very convoluted story that has a lot of characters the cast of characters um is comfortably 68 named dc characters um and that's adding and subtracting or not counting characters and splash pages that are not that say nothing or are not the focus of the page so there are like certain pages where you just see like a handful of characters and some later uh, like what would be considered montage shots that I didn't really count because they don't really have anything to do. They're just an abstract concept versus certain characters that are being focused on in that montage that are obviously nods to those to those characters growing up. It's kind of a weird thing. It's hard to really count any and all, but I tried to count as many characters as possible that I knew off the bat and some I had to go is that a real person or a fictional character and I had to google at least uh six or seven of them I'm proud to say that I knew most of them um but it was still very difficult to be like I don't know if Roy Roy Raymond you real no you're you're a DC character okay so there's a lot of that Roy Raymond show up Roy Raymond is in the very beginning in Iris's uh article they, she's mentioned as someone who is brought against uh, Huac. I, I should have remembered that because Roy, Roy Raymond, TV detective, right? Yes, he's oh, like man. a Ripley's Believe It or Not sort of a character. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so speaking of which, we're just going to dive right in, Joanne. I I would be very curious how long this takes me, but it is this is this is hefty. This is Darwin Cooks and Company 
uh, New Frontier. This was published in 2004. So this is about 16 years old. It's a very good comic. Uh, we're going to talk about it afterwards. And uh, it has its own universe, according to DC. This is Earth-21. So there you go, for those of you who are wondering where this fits into the multiverse of the DC universe. This is Earth-21. We start in the Pacific in 1945 with the Losers, a clandestine special operations team going to a mysterious island to rescue a high-value target along with the target's escort uh, known as Task Force X. As they make landfall, they're immediately beset by a large tyrannosaur that immediately kills one of the team. Going inland further, they find a cave that indicates their survivors of previous missions and other landfalls, and from countless uh, eras as well. Soon, the losers are picked off one by one uh, by dinosaurs and various other, you know, violent dangers on the island, and only John Cloud is left. He encounters Rick Flagg of Task Force X, who tells him that the high-value target is dead and that they should escape. Cloud gets Flagg off of the island, only to return to the island himself to die alongside his brothers and to kill the Tyrannosaur that killed some of them in, in the initial landfall. Fast forward to Edwards Air Force Base in 1948, where a young boy sneaks into a pilot's bar to meet the famous pilot Chuck Yeager. Yeager humors him as the kid shows a model plane to Yeager's uh, model plane of Yeager's famous flight and wonders if he can get an autograph. Yeager asks who he should make uh, the autograph out to, and the boy says, Hal Jordan. Jump ahead to 1952 in Gotham City, where Rex Tyler, the Hour Man, is being chased by police over rooftops. In the ensuing pursuit, Hour Man and the, and the police tumble from the unstable fire escapes and die. An article in a magazine by Iris West details that the JSA has since resigned as response to Hour Man's death and a call from the House Un-American Activities Committee to unmask themselves. Batman is a fugitive who has tussled with Superman at the behest of the government, and Task Force X, still led by Rick Flagg, is the government's response to the void left by costumed heroes. One year later, in Korea, 1953, we see Hal Jordan on a patrol with Ace Morgan, their planes high above the ground. The pair are attacked, and Hal, who is yet to use his weapons against any enemy plane but instead uses nonviolent means of distraction, is shot down. Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen, both on their way back to the uh, from the front, are rerouted in their chopper to save the downed pilot Jordan, who has horrifically had to kill a Korean soldier in the trench that he lands in to stay alive. Gotham City, 1955. Professor Erdell dies in the hands of a strange visitor who has been transported to his lab. The alien takes Erdell's wallet and disappears into the night. The Martian uses the money he gets from Erdell to buy an apartment and watches countless hours of television to understand the world he now finds himself in. In Indochina, Superman confronts Wonder Woman about her recent actions uh, regarding the releasing of a group of prisoners, arming them, and then watching them as they slaughter their defenseless captors. Wonder Woman defends her actions as the American way. Gotham, 1957. Detective John Jones, the Martian now in disguise, and Private Eye Slam Bradley follow a hunch of Detective Joneses to, to a church where a young boy is being held. When they enter, they find the cultists in the church in a free-for-all fight with the vigilante Batman. After defeating the evildoers, one of the wounded cultists speaks about how the setback will not stop the center. Meanwhile, in Vegas, boxing champ Wildcat Ted Grant goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the challenger Cassius Clay, also 
the early and original name of Muhammad Ali. In attendance are such high-profile high folks like Bruce Wayne, Oliver Queen, Lois Lane, Carol Ferris, Hal Jordan, Ace Morgan, Dinah Lance, reporter Iris West, and Selena Kyle. After Grant's victory against Clay, the villainous Captain Cold attacks the casino in an attempt to steal the championship winnings, only to be stopped by the Flash. After the ensuing mayhem, Hal Jordan drives his friend Ace Morgan to an airfield where he is to pilot a flight and pick up three other individuals for a television program they're all to be interviewed on. It's there that Morgan reveals he's pulled some strings and gotten Jordan an interview with Carol Ferris for a potential job offer after his time listing through test pilot companies. Morgan's flight encounters trouble as he, Professor Walter Haley, Red Ryan, and Rocky Davis crash into a mountain but miraculously survive. The quartet walk away from the wreckage, only to find themselves back at the scene of the event in the Rocky Mountains sometimes later, as if by some mysterious call. In Coast City, Hal interviews with Carol Ferris, and it goes swimmingly as he is hired, and their courtship begins. In Knoxville, Tennessee, John Wilson is lynched by the Ku Klux Klan and survives. Leaving the smoking wreckage of his home and the bodies of his wife and child behind, he vows vengeance, and begins to pursue it as the sledgehammer-wielding vigilante John Henry. In New York City, Rick Flagg loses another member of Task Force X to a flying dinosaur attacking the Statue of Liberty. After the funeral, he meets Hal Jordan outside the Ferris Aircraft uh, Depot and informs him that the work he will be doing will also be military in nature. Jordan is put through a battery of tests that he cannot understand, but he believes might have something to do with space travel. In Gotham, Detective John Jones enjoys a night at the movies where he sees newsreels of men calling themselves the Challengers of the Unknown in a cartoon of Superman. When he returns home, he is confronted by the vigilante Batman, who claims to know that he is an alien and wishes to work with him in regards to the cult they stopped previously and what the center might be. In Washington, D.C., Superman and Wonder Woman are receiving medals for their contributions to the nation, but Wonder Woman is cut short from her speech and asked to take a vacation due to her tireless efforts. In the desert, outside Ferris Aircraft, Hal Jordan is taken to a secret location by Carol to discover a man named King Faraday is leading the project that he is working on, and that the project is a flight to Mars. In Gotham, John Jones discovers a clue about the center in a book he took from one of the cases. Whatever it is, it is a large, ominous entity that has been around since the time of the Vikings, with John the Viking Prince having discovered it initially and barely surviving the encounter when he first made landfall there after, after killing several dinosaurs. In 1958, in Central City, the Flash is ambushed by King Faraday's men who attempt to capture him with a faux gorilla grod. This causes the Flash to retire from hero life on television, but not reveal his identity. In Gotham, John Jones interrogates a man who claims to be running from something called the Center, and tells Jones that there's a secret mission to Mars that interests the Center, Faraday comes to the precinct, takes the man away, and when he does, he shakes Jones's hand, and Jones reads his mind, seeing the truth about the Mars operation. Elsewhere, Hal is scrubbed from the Mars mission due to being too reckless, and John Wilson is murdered by the KKK. On Paradise Island, Superman visits Wonder Woman, who has walked away from the hero life due to the world's rejection of her support, and she tells Superman to look carefully at who he is helping. John Jones quits the police force, and asks Jim Gordon to set up a meeting with Batman so he can give him all the evidence he has on the center. In it, it shows people all over the world are experiencing mass hysteria and visions regarding the creature, even a man being locked in Arkham Asylum named Adam Strange, claiming to have heard of, this, heard of the center on his space travels. 
After this, Jones attempts to stow away on the Mars mission led by King Faraday, but is halted when Faraday finds him at the launch site. In the ensuing struggle, the Martian saves Faraday from the rocket and loses his chance of returning home. After some time, the Mars mission contacts Mission Control, where Hal Jordan and Will Magnus are monitoring its progress. A distress signal comes in saying one of the members of Task Force X has lost his nerve and sabotaged the mission. There is no way for them to make it to Mars now. The Challengers of the Unknown intercept this call and fly off to return the shuttle, but King Faraday attempts to wave them off, since the Mars mission was also loaded with warheads to defeat the Martians if they were hostile. Superman is called in, but is unable to save the rest of Task Force X, only while saving the Challengers. Before he dies, Rick Flagg tells Hal Jordan that he pushed him off of the mission because he knew it was suicide, and that during World War II he knew Hal's father. It was his last act to an old friend to protect Jordan's son. Sometime later, Hal is in the simulation room and is whisked away by a mysterious force at the middle of the desert. There he meets Abin Sewer, an alien who gives him a powerful green ring that allows him to do whatever he wills it to. Sewer explains the rules of the ring and then dies. Jordan gives him a proper burial and begins to experiment with this ring. While this happens, the challengers of the unknown, now including June Robbins, are being interviewed by Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen. While there, a distress call goes out from Cape Canaveral that giant dinosaurs are attacking and the challengers take their guests with them. In Metropolis, Superman is looking through the evidence that Batman gave him regarding the center, and part of it is a book written by a children's author that seems to chronicle the life of the center, which states that it wishes to leave our planet and explore others, as if the center was speaking through the writer. Paradise Island is attacked. An ominous giant creature that spews forth monstrous beasts and assaults the island, but nearly ultimately passes it by, destroying most of what it could find. At Nellis Air Force Base, King Faraday and Martian Manhunter play chess, discussing the center and its imminent arrival. At Cape Canaveral, the Challengers encounter the giant dinosaur and with the help of Superman subdue it. In the ocean, King Arthur of Atlantis mobilizes the sea to fight an impending doom that he sees on the horizon. Captain Nathaniel Adam of Cape Canaveral, the Challengers of the Unknown, and Superman all begin searching the seas as a wounded Wonder Woman warns them that the center is coming. It is shortly found by Lois Lane. The center is a massive living island floating above the waves. Its surface is teeming with monsters and dinosaurs, and it has large gaping holes across it that shoot powerful beams of energy, which has destroyed everything that has come into contact with it. Seeing the report, heroes around the globe are mobilized. The Flash, Green Arrow, the Sea Devils, the Blackhawks, scientists like Will Magnus, Niles Calder, Adam Strange, and Ray Palmer all begin to move to Cape Canaveral. Hal Jordan takes an experimental craft himself from Ferris Aircraft and uses his ring to power it faster than it ever could to reach the location. Superman, along with King Faraday and Martian Manhunter, mobilize the assembled forces, but as Superman goes for a recon mission, he is blasted with the full force of the center and falls into the sea. With the greatest weapon gone, the team turns to unconventional ideas. With Ray Palmer's shrinking device, they plan on using the Flash's speed to cover the surface of the center in the shrinking ray, which at the moment causes whatever it shrinks to explode. Meanwhile, a team of pilots will fly into this inside the center and detonate nuclear devices from within. Hal Jordan, Ace Morgan, and Captain Adam volunteer. As the assault takes place, Phantom Stranger, Zatanna, Dr. Fate, the Spectre, and Billy Batson meet to discuss whether or not they should intervene and if the humans who have turned to science should be helped by magic. Hal, Ace, and Captain Adam fly into the center, 
each experiencing horrific hallucinations and fantasies. They're attacked by a myriad of threats, and just before Hal's ship is destroyed, he activates his ring and saves himself. Unable to save Captain Adam, who detonates his payload as a last resort, Hal saves Ace and flies them both out of the center while Adam's explosion rips through the creature. The Flash begins his assault and races across the surface of the center, shrinking it inch by inch, and as the explosions mount and the creature dies, Hal uses his ring to fling it out into space where it detonates. Afterwards, as the group celebrates, an Atlantean ship lands on the shore and Aquaman emerges with a battered but breathing Superman. The JLA is formed and the new frontier of the 1960s begins. So, that's a really truncated version of New Frontier. <laughs> that only took me 15 minutes, maybe. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was impressively concise. It, it's really hard because, again, I didn't name all the 68 friggin' references. The main ones to, to explain, obviously. Um... The Losers, Task Force X, are from Our Fighting Forces, which was a magazine that uh, was uh, in the 50s that included like Sergeant Rock, Haunted Tank, The War That Time Forgot. The center itself is the island from The War That Time Forgot, so it is Dinosaur Island. Hmm. Um, the Losers uh, dying to save Task Force X is basically the Losers dying to save the Suicide Squad. Rick Flagg is from the Suicide Squad. Um, King Faraday, I've never really seen or, or heard of anything from, but he is, he is a character from old DC comics. Um, there's, there's so much, I mean, there's like, they, like we, we mentioned, they, they reference Roy Raymond at one point. Niles Calder is the chief from Doom Patrol. Will Magnus is in this just as a scientist and there's no metal men. Um, Ray Palmer, obviously, uh, at one point somebody is watching the Johnny Thunder show on television. Um, there's <laughs> yeah. there's so many little things. I mean, most of the members of the JSA are there. I mean, Wildcat Grant um, is a member of the JSA, which was great having him box. Uh, Muhammad Ali was just kind of a fun little thing. Um, and the idea that he had to fight unconventionally to beat Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali was a better boxer than him was kind of nice. Um it is a really well done visual uh, story. I will say that just as someone who reads a lot of comics, mm -hmm. this is a really well written, well drawn, and visually paced book. Um, it is something probably every DC fan should have in their library, I think, because I think it does a good job with all of these characters. The one thing I wish it did better was the women characters. Um, Wonder Woman doesn't really have that large of a part in the book. Um, she serves as mainly a philosophical con conversation point, um, bringing up things that are difficult to think about or believe in or, um, harsh truths. Um, Lois Lane is the next most active member in the plot next to June Robbins, um, uh, who is a member of the Challengers of the Unknown. Um, but we get introduced to selena and dinah and neither of them ever show up in costume um no hawks so you don't get Hawkman and hawk girl um alana isn't in the book even though we have adam strange um we don't have platinum because will magnus apparently hasn't made the metal men um 
Elastigirl from Doom Patrol is not in this because it looks like Niles Calder. This is before the Doom Patrol existed because one of the pilots in the final assault, you'll notice him in different sequences. He's also the guy to speak when he leads the assault. Larry Trainer is Negative Man from the Doom Patrol. Um, so that's him before he becomes <laughs> Negative Man. Um, there's a lot of like, I mean, Captain Nathaniel Adam is Captain Adam. Like, that's him before he gets the nuke suit that turns him into a living nuclear reaction. So, that's... It's things like that where there's a lot of characters pre-being who they are. Um, even even Ray Palmer is not the Adam. He's just a guy who figured out how to shrink things. You know, so there's little things like that that are fun. Bigger things like seeing the Challengers be more fleshed out was amazing. I loved all of that. Um really fun relationships between these characters seeing what these people would be doing i love that ace from the challengers and hal are friends because they're pilots Mm -hmm. um there's just it's a it's a lot of comic it could require you to know a lot but also it's so well written that you might not mind it kind of the the way that i think about it is that there are specific characters who i think you want who I think are enriched in here by knowing where they end up. I think Hal especially is one that character where he is enriched by knowing the usual portrayal of Hal and seeing that this is an origin story for him. And I think if it could be said that there is a single plot threat or a single storyline that is the heart of this story, yeah. it is Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan's origin story, and I want to say that specifically, not not Green Lantern's origin story, but Hal Jordan building parts of himself and having those experiences, and then eventually being the Green Lantern. For, so first off, to to agree with the point that you don't need to have read a bunch of things to be able to appreciate this, but it certainly might yeah. enrich your experience. Uh, one of the ways I've sort of been thinking about this, actually, since the start of this conversation, I didn't realize it earlier, this feels like an origin story where half the characters have are already, like, progressed through. It, it, is, it isn't like everything started from square zero. It is, here are a couple of characters who are going to take from start to their apotheosis moment, but the rest of the world has already existed. I think you're right in saying that Hal Jordan's narrative is the through line. And I think it's a good one partially because as as a big Hal Jordan fan personally, this might be my favorite version of him. A guy who's really willing to acknowledge his own faults, who at his core is someone who just wants to be a good person and wants to do one singular thing, which is be a pilot and go into space but finds himself in a situation that he has abilities that can help people, so therefore he does. And learns from his mistakes, understands when he's called out in his mistakes, grows as a person throughout the entire comic. He ha- there's, a, there's a racism bit that's very well handled that he handles in a way that I think, over the, over the history of the character, people have called Hal Jordan a racist due to that one sequence in the Denny O'Neill comic where the African-American man confronts him about what has you know green lantern done for for anyone you know for the for the black skins and he's out there saving the blue skins and the green skins and the and everybody else this i think kind of shows the version of hal jordan that i always think it is is that hal jordan's not racist he's just racially unaware he's not he's not 
overtly oppressive and 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 racist he's just a guy who's never been confronted with the idea of racial injustice and when confronted with it immediately goes oh of course that's wrong i'm so sorry and and to his credit like the like he does the thing that that people would ask of cops is hey as soon as he gets confronted with that he basically quits like he doesn't quit quit but he has the okay I'm not going to keep doing business as usual. I'm going on the hard traveling heroes thing. Yeah. And I, and I kind of like that about him. And I think that's one of those things that kind of gets lost in translation about the character that I think this comic does very well is that it finds a way to show him as ignorant, but not because he chooses to be ignorant just because it's not something he's put his time and energy into learning, you know, the, which extends to learning about himself learning how to deal with certain stressors. Like he thinks he can just kind of brute force through some of the training that um, Rick Flagg and King Faraday put him through. And when he realizes that his recklessness is not something that's needed in a mission that's so delicate, he admits it. And he says, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. I'm going to be in the control room. Like there are levels at which Hal Jordan becomes self-aware over the course of the narrative that I think is also something that is telling about the narrative being people waking up to this new world that they're becoming a part of like superman's narrative is him realizing that maybe kind of perchance the people he's working with don't have the best ideals for the country that he serves things aren't the way that i thought they were and i'm going to now with that information make a deciding choice as to who i want to be in that world and i think that that's really cool um because a lot of those decisions are based out of a selfish observation towards then being a selfless act flashes is i'm just trying to do the the right thing these people are trying to kidnap me and capture me i'm gonna quit but then when the world needs me i'm gonna be there because it's not about who i'm helping it's 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 not about who i'm working with it's about who i'm helping and I like those arcs for all of these characters it is it is very interesting which also i think kind of mirrors the idea of the idealized version of the, of the U.S. in the 1950s to 60s, which was this, like, we're going to try and be a, a world power that's for good. Didn't work out in a lot of ways, obviously, historically. But it's like what we talked about in the, in the last episode about, like, superheroes being very Americana. This is a very Americana idea of the, the self for the, for the rest, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few kind of a situation. And I really liked that narrative and it was very um, hopeful and not as cynical as you would imagine a 2000s era comic would be about superheroes. Yeah. I have some thoughts. Sure. But I, will, no, I, mean, I will agree that, that there are pieces of that that come through and that I fully agree with that read in pieces uh and actually before we move off of characters the other character who i want to call out like we touched on a little bit was uh john john's uh i think this version of john just worked so well for me and and i think it's largely oh, for yeah. the same reasons that Hal worked for me it's not just confidence it's not uh it's not just like Hal is a braggart it is a character who is not fundamentally defined by doubt, but is going through doubts. Uh, like in Hal's case, he is, I, I feel like he is at a plateau where he has pushed himself 
through natural talent and some dedication to a level. And now he is actively trying to deal with the the issues that he has that are endemic is a strong word, but deeply rooted of being brash, willing to take extreme risks, uh, being hot headed and defensive and pushing against people at the same time as he is working at that and preparing and prepared to accept the consequences uh, and trying to make it work. And that holding those two things in conflict of acknowledging that his issues are deep seated at the same time as he is trying to overcome them. I think we do, we do have that from a similar vein with, uh, John John's. We have a character who is actively looking for a reason to believe. Uh, yeah, he is not a, he's not a passive participant in the American experiment, quote unquote. He is trying to find the positive and he is doubting that. And especially because so much of Martian Manhunter has been both in the 50s and modern is almost defined by stoicism, having this more um, empathic empathic. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. He, yeah he's, he's an empathic individual because I, a lot of his um, observations are based off of emotion. He it it's, it comes across more as um, that he's an empath and not a telepath this in this narrative at least mm -hmm. and i think you're right i think that is a lot more it's fresh and it's a different take than the stoic alien there's a there's a line that felt especially incisive for him uh that really cut to the core of the thing that he was the role that he was playing in the story and i'm going to talk about this more later uh he is the he is the alien he is literally and figuratively he is the other he is the uh the other that america is terrified of at mm -hmm. and he's playing chess with faraday and the line is uh it may take the combined efforts of all americans to meet this challenge is your government are you ready to accept that the bit that especially resonated with me was that that was i believe he was in like full martian form at that moment uh, ca casually isn't quite the right word, but uh, p gently uh, playing mm -hmm. chess with his captor, uh, who he saved rather than let be killed by uh, the rocket launch. Uh, and it's it has just been acknowledged. You could leave at any point, but you choose to stay here. It's he he is including himself in that moment as all Americans, and I like. There are a lot of pieces of that that I like. And for especially for both him and Hal, with a couple pieces accepted, I really, really like these characters and the versions yeah. of them. These are some of the best distilled versions of a lot of these characters. Superman being somewhat naive, but well-meaning. Like when Martian Manhunter meets Superman for the first time, the idea that Superman immediately calms him because of his confidence and his good nature is one of the best descriptions of how Superman should always be, at least in narratives where he is the good guy. Um, I like Diana being a little bit more aggressive. I enjoy a, I know I'm right and this is wrong 
I'm going to wait until you come and see it from my perspective, and then we can talk, version of Diana. Not because it's not gentle, but it's kind of the idea of like, I'm willing to still talk to you, but you're not ready to hear the truth. Mm-hmm. And I and I kind of enjoy that version for her. I mean, this version of Barry Allen is kind of like, not not humor-filled, but he's, he's snide. He's yeah. cocky. He's a little bit more... I know I can win because I'm faster than you. And I like a Barry that is a little bit more self-assured as opposed to too in his head and too and too distracted by thinking about the mechanics of a situation and not really owning to his own power. I like Barry when he's self-aware. It's still a level of, of unsure and maybe I'm not doing the right thing, but I know I can kick your ass. <laughs> Is, is kind of the best way to describe it. He's like, I can beat the hell out of Captain Cold, but maybe I'm not doing the right thing. And it's that level of, of humility and humanity to Barry Allen is really fun because it still allows Hal Jordan to be the, we'll figure it out later, let's just save the day version of them. There's still the brave and the bold between the two of them. And I also like that we didn't get really any interaction between the two, between, you know, Barry and Hal. Huh. Yeah, we didn't. There's little to no lines between the pair of them, except for Hal going, that guy's really cool. Every time Hal sees the Flash, he's watching him work. He's never interacting with him. And the guy he interacts with the most is Ace Morgan. And I love their their mm. friendship. That's a great paternal mentorship. Because it's not really discussed, but Ace is supposed to be at least 10 to 15 years older than Hal. If he fought in World War II... And was a pilot in World War II with Rick Flagg and Hal's dad. He's He's got to be in his 40s or something. And Hal's in his mid to late 20s, early 30s. And so their relationship is actually really charming. Mm-hmm. And very loving and very a very nice relationship that you don't really see in anything outside of war movies. Of two two men who are just really good good at being comfortable around each other. So I think specifically with like two people, the other example that I'd give is like cop stories. Uh, your partner. Mm. It feels yeah. that you're, no, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of really interesting interactions. I think also one of the characters that's shown for me was Rick Flagg. Yeah, he wasn't terribly deep, but it was kind of cool to see. This is what happens to a guy who's constantly leading suicide missions. Mm -hmm. This is how jaded, how numb, how sad that guy can be. And I think to some degree, it's even strengthened by the fact that it, there are large chunks of the story where it doesn't feel like there's a ton of differentiation between, uh, Rick flag and, uh, King Faraday. Uh, and because, uh, Nick Flag or Rick Flag goes out and his uh d- destroy destroy the sh- the spaceship to uh pr- prevent to save the world and, but he still kind of gets to live on to a degree and continue his story arc by King Faraday continuing to be a part of things continuing to work with John Johns and eventually uh King Faraday winds up sort of taking the side of good i guess uh and rebuilding bridges and you can it kind of it it kind of completes a redemption arc 
redemption arc isn't even a strong word. Uh, it it continues to turn the script on how we viewed uh, Rick Flag earlier. Yeah, and I I mean I would go with redemption arc. It doesn't make King a good person. Hmm. He just happens to be right, and I think that's that's the issue with King's arc is that King Faraday plays the stereotypical G-man character of. I will do anything for this government, even commit atrocities. The only thing saving his character from being an absolute terrible person is the fact that he was prepping for a thing that was actually real. Were there, were he chasing something else? Were he preparing for John Jones or something like that instead of the center? He would have been a huge asshole who would have been irredeemable. But the fact being that he is preparing for something to happen and something to go wrong whether it be martians or anything else and he is ready to absolutely team up with everybody when it comes time makes him if anything lawful neutral he's not a good guy but you're damn happy to have him on your team because he's got all the stuff you need Mm -hmm. and you're not gonna like him later but at least you won and i think that's encapsulated by his relationship with the flash yeah And I think that that shows it is that Faraday knows he's a bad person and he lets Flash punch him when they're both at Cape Canaveral and he goes like, hey, no hard feelings for trying to arrest you and put you in a jail. And Flash just socks him on the chin and knocks him out. And then Faraday finds him later and he's like, look, man, all things aside, this isn't about you and me. This is about saving everybody else. You have a right to be mad at me. But let's... Let's get beyond this. And I think that's one of the saving graces of his character is acknowledging his, not evilness, but his his moral grayness and not taking it as a personal affront when people call him on it. He's self-aware in a way that is almost affable. And I think that's the piece where I want to start talking about the geopolitics of this. So is this the point to make that transition? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so <laughs> I got some notes. Uh, yeah, let's start with the big picture stuff. Um, so first off, as noted, this story generally is a story of the 50s, le- specifically the 50s on the edge of the 60s. Uh, the The idea of the 60s as the new frontier, and I'll talk about that later on, uh, the point at which all manner of possibilities become possibilities uh, and the challenge is put before America and the heroes in this story to push into new uh, new possibilities and new new ways of making the world better uh, this this part of the 50s <laughs> this winds up being a story about the Cold War very very intentionally uh so i'm just gonna lay out how i view this story um it is largely framed in a cold war sense uh with or rather the cold war is both a a literal plot element and a metaphorical plot element uh it is this to me is a story of a foreign policy consensus where large parts of the first four issues especially i guess yeah about the first four issues maybe three uh are about domestic politics in america and divisions in america and specifically like 
uh, McCarthyist uh, reactionary oppression in 50s America. And then the arising of an existential foreign slash alien slash uh, paranormal threat um, that all the heroes have to set aside their differences and acknowledge that, yeah, we're going to have to all work together uh, to take care of and banding together to make that happen. There are a couple things with that. Uh, the first is, <laughs> you might notice this sounds a lot like Watchmen. <laughs> you might also notice it sounds like Independence Day or any any giant atrocity attacking the planet narrative yeah. without the specific trappings of superheroes. Yes. I want to... I want to hit the Watchmen button a few more times, though, because yeah. a bunch of the elements here feel especially like uh, Watchmen pre, right up to the point where the super t that super team tried to be reassembled with the new generation. I it's been a while now. Since I read. Just a just a quick clarification: we are talking Watchmen comic, not the HBO Watchmen television show. True. Now that that is a thing, <laughs> we need to we need to make that distinction. Not I haven't watched that show personally, so I can't speak to it. I don't know if Matt has, but we are referring specifically to the Watchmen graphic novel. And and now we even have to clarify that we are talking about the original graphic novel and not any of the supplementary material. Oh yeah, we Yeah, not the not the new before Watchmen or <laughs> the Button saga or whatever's going on in the last two or three years of DC's publication. Watchmen, the nineteen eighties Alan Moore comic graphic novel. That is what we're talking about. I just want it to be newly noted just how much John rolled his eyes there. <laughs> uh, anyways. Uh, There's a whole podcast dedicated to my feelings about Watchmen, but that's... <laughs> we don't do that podcast. Thank God. But uh, there will probably be points going through here where you might hear me suddenly catch myself as I remember, oh yeah, that's a part that feels like Watchmen. So first off, that... The other piece that I'm going to sort of draw into this is we use the term new frontier and we talked about like new possibility space. So the final third of the uh, sixth issue uh, is a montage set to JFK speech, the, the new frontier speech, uh, which was specifically when he accepted the Democratic Democratic nomination, I, I believe the first time. So I guess late like 58 or 60 uh might have been 1960 i don't remember uh but the first time he accepted the democratic nomination uh for president and it's talking about these are the challenges we are not defined by a new deal we are defined by a new frontier new challenges that we must face and in the area of science in the era of goodwill the thing to remember is this is a story written with a specific view towards JFK and towards that speech. Uh, and a lot of my critiques of this story are going to be rooted in that the fact that this story is coming in with this viewpoint. First off, I want to call out that, hey, it is great to be working with a story that has a viewpoint, that it is clearly trying to articulate. This is a story yeah. that... I feel confident approaching with critical lenses. 
Downside being, I'm going to come at it with some critical lenses. Yeah, for the, for the first time in a long time, Matt actually gets to flex his historical and geopolitical knowledge with not with the idea that the work has an intent to be geo and politically um, poignant. So this is a far cry from Martian Manhunter beating up gangsters and Superman sneezing galaxies away. This is a this is a book with a message, a a very explicit message. Mm-hmm. So, one of the pieces that encapsulates it the most is in the speech. I mean, JFK was a cold warrior. Let's be clear on that. In a lot of ways, uh, JFK. One of the first things that happened under his administration was the Bay of Pigs invasion, a military. At- a well paramilitary attempt at regime change within the North American hemisphere. And while he inherited that action, oh, okay, actually, for for those who don't know, uh, the Bay of Pigs was a CIA-sponsored attempt at overthrowing uh, Castro and the uh, communist regime in Cuba. At the time, this regime was relatively new. Castro would face a bunch of assassination attempts, but this was specifically a attempt to fund a bunch of Cuban exiles to go in and uh, overthrow the government of Cuba, uh, and it failed horribly. Uh, there was not it. It did not build any momentum. They basically showed up and were arrested, and it was a massive embarrassment. Uh, that is an operation that uh, JFK inherited from Eisenhower. It was like, hey, here are plans. We were planning on uh, pulling the trigger on this. Uh, your call. And JFK took the advice of, it, of its advisors to make that happen. Uh, and having established that as sort of where we're starting from, the speech that, rewinding a bit in time, uh, the speech that he gave, the New Frontier speech, calls out specifically uh, that there are three parts to the world. One part living in freedom, one part living under repressive tyranny, and one part living in poverty. This is first world, second world, third world, first world being the West, and specifically the democratic West, uh, second world being areas under Soviet influence, and third world being the the way that we use it now, uh, developing countries, specifically largely used for countries that are being decolonized, uh, where the uh, British Empire is falling apart, the French Empire specifically, all those new quote-unquote nations uh, having relatively little financial backing and having poor populations and uh, infrastructure that previously and even contemporaneously uh, had been geared towards the exploitation by uh, foreign companies. So the reason I'm calling that out specifically is it entirely homogenizes each of those areas. Uh, First off, it assumes that there is no one in the West who is not free, as, which is completely contradicting the earlier put or uh, attention from that the comic gives to John Henry. Uh, there is one of the the intro to one of the issues is 
various statements about uh, political repression from reactionary uh, groups, McCarthyism, etc. And these are just the quote or paraphrasing. And these are just the problems that you would face if you were white. God help you if you were black. First off, uh, the, the fact that the story ends with this montage and this this quote about those three portions of the world completely eliminates or ignores slash literally whitewashes uh, the fact that there are people in the U.S. who are not free. Second, uh, that black character, John Henry, I think the only major character of color in the entire story other than uh, Thomas uh and gets, oh and uh i don't remember his name uh cloud at the start uh john cloud from the losers and thomas kalamaku are the only other people of color in the story who get facetime and lines and john cloud dies and thomas kalamaku has maybe seven lines yep. one of which is berating hal jordan for being racist and john henry i believe has exactly one Many pages yes. of, I mean, Darwin Cook really loves to be to take a piece of writing that someone else did and use it as narration boxes uh, to punctuate a thing. It was, what, he had maybe like 12, 15 pages that was just the Ballad of John Henry over stuff happening? Um, to his credit, there isn't anyone for John Henry to talk to. And I think that isn't an excuse, but I think that's the reason that John Henry has no lines, is that in his quest for vengeance, both his wife and his child are dead. Mm -hmm. And he is a black man in Tennessee trying to kill KKK members. You're not wrong that he should have more lines. And in a story about the 1950s and 1960s, where where the civil rights of African Americans in this country are a huge deal, your major black character not only failing in his quest for vengeance, but dying as a martyr in a monolithic way for the for black culture is not great. And then after that, the character who is our focal point for themes of oppression and fear of the other is John Johns, who takes the form of a white guy. He pretty thoroughly takes the form of Superman without hair. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that gets me on this is I don't have a lot of experience with uh, with Martian Manhunter in the animated stuff. Uh, but he is a character who it feels like there is a black read of him. And I say I am I am going to be putting myself on a bit of a limb because this is not something I am as familiar with, but he feels like he can be a Piccolo character where, uh, where black folks can empathize with him or where there is more affinity for him, uh, I guess, appreciation for him among black folks, uh, because he is a character who is marked as alien or marked as different in skin color. Uh, and with, there's a really great uh, article from uh, Austin Walker a long while back about why DBZ was 
such a major cultural touchstone for a lot of black folks and it has to do with that well this this is this this character and this experience isn't yours white americans so at least that gives me more of a, a place in it i guess uh to kind of sum it up i will say my familiarity with john jones as a character in animated areas um for example the justice league doom movie but also the cartoon young justice his John Jones form is a African American man. That that makes me happy. And looking through the list of like voice actors, it is uh, j- just purely doing a quick scan. It is majority black, and I appreciate that. It feels like there is a missed beat here. To a, I think it would it would do a lot if he had like started the like at one point gone out as oh I am black John Jones and realizes that that's not accepted and switches to a white John Jones. And maybe there's a moment at the end, if, if you really want to be hammy, of, okay, now I can switch back because I know that I am valued by my friends or something. But more important to me is the fact that the it does the metaphor of oppression and marginalized groups by saying, here is an alien, but he's white. The literal a marginalized group gets left behind in representation. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. And and there is also a lot of statements to be said about um, black actors portraying aliens in a lot mm-hmm. of fiction and a lot of television and a lot of film. And there's something to be said about the idea that that is where that is. Those are the narratives that they get cast in a lot. Yeah. And I, I'm not qualified to talk on it, but I just know that there have been conversations about how come black people get cast as aliens in a lot of movies. It's very interesting. Um, or more specifically, non-white actors cast as aliens. Mm-hmm. Why that is, what about that? Is there an underlying fetishization of exotic, quote-unquote, features that makes them look more alien, which then continues to hammer the point home that white features are the norm and anything else is different um and that's always where i kind of start to feel a little iffy about making john jones black are we then again saying that they are they is it another form of othering and i and i don't know i'm again i don't have an answer to that i'm not qualified to really to to be an authority on that situation it is just one of the things that pops up into my head when thinking about that and being racially aware in comics and narratives I think you're right. I think there is a missed opportunity is to use him as someone who could have talked more about racial injustice, especially with King Faraday, especially in those moments where he's by himself observing the United States as one of us and commenting. You could have used him as a perspective character a lot more than Darwin Cook did. Mm-hmm. I will not excuse it and say, like, he also had a shitload of plot to get through. <laughs> but um, you're right. There were there was a there was a swing there that was missed, and it was it it was <laughs> it was a swing that turned into a bunt. Instead of giving us John Jones 100 percent in talking about the racial injustice and uh, disparaging narrative or disparity narrative, we had John Henry and also John Jones. It's half committing to this to the idea. And while I love the John Henry narrative, it also just kind of starts and then stops yep. as a martyr metaphor. 
and doesn't really go anywhere because then no one ever talks about it ever again. It's never brought up again. Um, after his death, when uh, John Jones and Slam Bradley are watching the coverage about it on the news in a bar, it's not brought back up. It is it is it is uh, acknowledged in veiled terms, like you mentioned when he's playing chess, going like all Americans or every American. Um, it is never explicit. He, he never calls anybody out explicitly about it, mm-hmm. and that is kind of a missed a missed moment. And I do want to say, like, I have to, I do have to give it credit for this, and I'm glad to be able to give it credit for this. It doesn't both sides racism or political division you're absolutely even. right like it makes it pretty clear <laughs> yeah. that it, it could have gone very poorly in the opposite direction it just half commits and kind of fizzles out and i'd rather it half commit and fizzle out than say but also and <laughs> yeah it <laughs> yes uh and so that that bit's disappointing but you, you know it could be worse it's just that because it fizzles out it means that the the narrative of uh, or the oppression that is being called out in the second half when it comes time for everyone to work together is the that the vigilantes don't have the freedom to be vigilantes, which is a very specific kind of freedom. Yeah, that's a... As someone who writes a comic about the difference between vigilantes and registered heroes, there's a there's a thing there and there's a narrative there of I'm breaking the rules for the right reasons, therefore it should be allowed. Yes. And that's one of those things that you kind of sit there and say, hey, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it is a very specific kind of narrative to look at that in that way um it can come across entitled and i think that's that's one of the things that i struggle with in my own writing with you know with veritas is and not to not to get too far off topic but how to how to write vigilantes who both look at it like hey i'm doing this for free and i'm doing this i'm doing a good thing how come you hate me but also vigilantes who are like hey man some folks don't get justice and some folks get left behind and some folks slip through the cracks and that's not fair. And I don't do this expecting to get a pat on the back and expecting to get ignored because I'm doing the right thing. I do this because someone needs to. There's a difference in that mentality of vigilante and I think that's kind of where Batman straddles the line in this comic. Batman is never like, I want them to like me. Batman's like, I'm doing this because this is what I do. And there are other characters, and I think they make, they do take a shot at the JSA in this by saying, you walked away when they told you to register, instead of saying, I want to keep doing this. You said it was more important to keep your personal freedom than it was to help people. And that says a lot about you. And I thought that was a really ballsy thing to do for Darwin Cook, to take a huge shot at what is effectively the greatest generation of heroes. Yep. To take 1940s heroes and say, this was about you, and if it really was about other people, you would have stuck around. The other thing that I want to dig into is we, we talked about we talked about John. It's time to circle back around. I I, I need to talk more about Hal. Cause I <laughs> mm, I 
Like I said, I love some piece. I love large chunks of this version of Hal, but there are some edges that I want to talk about. Yeah, this this comic is not batting a thousand, but it's got a decent batting average. Yeah. Uh, first off, yes, fully agree. It. I mean, a, a lot of the things that rub me the wrong way about this comic in general are sins of omission, I suppose. Uh, just like a hey. You didn't think about this. Uh, with regards to the bit about uh, it being like greater than the sum of its part, that whole piece, I guess the way that I put it is, uh, <laughs> first off, this is a comic that I did not enjoy, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. And plus... Uh, no, or two different taglines. It's that one, and then this is a comic that I didn't like, and I couldn't wait to talk about. I think that's probably a little closer to it because it was just like things bouncing around in my head of this, like it's making a statement, and I don't like it, and I don't agree with it, and I don't think it's thought out or handled as well as it should be. But it it has artistic merit, um, and the other angle that. I want to talk about that with is how, because uh, there are a couple pieces. First off, I want to call out how am- I really, really like the sequence where Hal gets shot down and has winds up having to shoot the North Green soldier in order to survive. I there's especially the it's partly it's just a good war story. It happens after the armistice is signed. They know that the war is over, but the North Korean soldiers don't for whatever reason. Uh, He gets shot down. Uh, He tries to remember the words in Korean for the war's over, and he just can't remember in time because he is fighting for his life uh, in basically just like a knife, trying to hold the knife back and get a gun in place, just like, what are the words? What are the words? What are the words? And he has to pull the trigger before he gets killed. And it's a impactful three panel page of the North Korean soldier looking down at him as he's holding the gun up. And he looks like a kid. He looks like he's just there. He looks scared. And then there's a red panel with just white text. Blam. And then... It's Hal with his eyes closed. The North Korean soldier with his eyes open, scared, and Hal, eyes closed, can't look. And on a couple, like a page or two later, on the flight back, he he gets the words and he says it. And the and the pilot says, "The war's over." That that's what he. Or Lois asks, "What was that?" And he says, "War's over." That's those are the words. And that is spectacular. I I love that deeply. But the wh- where that falls apart for me is towards the end of the book where Hal is having his apotheosis moment. He is confronting uh, Carol Ferris and saying, like, no, I have to go. I had a philosophical epiphany that it, the reason I didn't kill in Korea was... Be, except for that one time when he didn't he didn't shoot anyone down when he was in Korea. He was a he was the distracting fighter pilot. Uh, he never shot anyone down. 
the reason is because what we were doing there wasn't worth killing over, but survival was. And that just fell apart for me because it because it wasn't like defending lives. It wasn't this is a thing that I wish hadn't happened. The way it was put forward is not triumphant, but an affirming philosophy of when you are in a fight for survival against an existential threat uh, that is pure evil, in, the, in this case, the center, you, you fight to survive and you kill to survive. It is kill or be killed. And that, it hit me so much the wrong way. Because it's interesting for all that the original scene established a clear thing that could have avoided it. It was if I only remembered the words, the takeaway that he has at the end of towards the end of the book isn't I need to always have the words or I need to defend myself to the best of my ability. It's when it's kill or be killed, you kill. It's not that I have an issue with Hal being willing to kill. I have an issue with Hal being willing to kill for his own protection only. That's interesting. And and I I didn't read it that way. And I I personally read it as he was willing to kill in that instance because there was no other solution. Not in the not in the uh Korean situation. In the fight with the center. Yes. There are no right words. And I think that's the thing is that there's nothing to say. You cannot convince this. All there is is either dying or not dying. And I agree. He, he as the character who is the through line throughout the entire comic, having killer be killed, be his mission statement, is weird. Again, as as he is the through line character, I also don't feel like it's. I feel like there are other people in situations that might agree with that, and specifically groups of oppressed populations who face people who are out to do harm to them violently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of one of those things where it's like that's a your mileage may vary feeling. Yeah, I think if it had been contextualized differently, if the yeah. if the North Korean soldier had if I hadn't read the North Korean soldier as being that uh, scared kid, scared drafty is perhaps a better way to put it. Uh, yeah, the the other thing that throws me off, like, and I'll I almost feel like I should have led with this because I it one hundred percent colored how I read the scene of uh, him talking with Carol. There's a bit where he calls her a rich bitch, and yeah. no, and especially not for it doesn't like correct me if I'm misremembering the scene at all. It didn't wasn't for anything. It was just I I have to go do this, and I will say she is calling him a coward and an idiot in the in their argument. I'm not saying it's justified. I am saying that it is a escalation in name calling 
it's not something he should have called her, but I feel like in that argument, she is calling him names and yelling at him and shouting, where have you been? Where's my, where's my plane? What the hell have you been doing? And it's not a good moment, but it is one of the only moments in this comic that is like that. I, I will mostly agree. Uh, from a, I think it is the only moment from a quote unquote, like, not even quote unquote from a good character from a character who we're yeah. meant to empathize with the rest of the time like it this this story is a little casual with the use of slurs uh and every time it is done for effect and i understand it but it like i was not expecting to see an n-bomb or uh, an oh, i totally was or uh there was one more well, and i don't remember what it was i i expected to see the n-word due to the fact that we saw the the KKK. Mm-hmm. The second I saw them, I was like, we're going to get an N-word in here. There's like, especially when the main character is a black man fighting them. Mm-hmm. I I was not surprised. Um, due to the time period, the context of the sequence, and what was going on. King Faraday calling someone uh, a disparaging name for people who are mentally uh, challenged. It's 2004. Yeah. Again, that's one of those things where it's like, we really weren't having that conversation about that word in 2004. And also, it's a comic set in the 1950s. Yeah. I I, I look at it the way of, you know, Quentin Tarantino using the N-word in Django Unchained. Yeah. It. There's a, you know, and it's just like, yeah, this is a period piece. So hearing those words in that time period isn't out of place. We're uncomfortable with it because we have tried to move past it. And individually, we may be beyond that word. So it makes us uncomfortable. But seeing it in historical context is kind of like, if you're casually throwing it about, it's unnecessary. But if you're using it for effect once, you only get one. Unless you think, unless your narrative is about that, and in which case, it better be handling that very delicately. Yeah, uh, the other two that I remember were a a slur that is a, for Japanese folks and for Korean folks. Uh, two, mm-hmm. so two different two different slurs. I'm I'm not gonna say them, uh, but you kind of know where I'm going with it. Uh, it. I get it. It's used for effect. It clearly establishes these character, the characters who are saying them. It just like honestly, the the other the other piece that throws me off, and perhaps another instance of perhaps we should have started this conversation with this. I I don't know about you, but I remembered like New Frontier, the animated uh, movie, being much more uh hopeful i guess is probably the way to put it but it felt a little bit more uh heroic silver age and a little less yeah the the transition from pain into the heroic silver age yeah no you're not wrong the the animated film of the new frontier is markedly different if anything aside from the fact that there are about a thousand less characters um (laughs) It is, it is different in tone. Certain characters are replaced in certain instances. Um, Hal Jordan is on the Mar- Mars mission instead of just Task Force X. Um, I will also say this. The New Frontier cartoon is also PG. I think PG-13. But yeah, PG, it's PG-13, a light one but at the, most. You know, 
I I will say that it is uh, it is made for young adults and up. Mm-hmm. And I would expect DC to try and do a little bit of revisionist history with something this dark. You're not going to see them make a Watchmen cartoon kind of a thing. They also kind of do this with uh, Flashpoint. The Flashpoint cartoon Mm -hmm. is a little bit also nicer than the, you know, actual comic is. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is a comic that academically and socially is maybe maybe a C grade when it comes to mission statement and what it's trying to say and how it's doing it as a comic as an as a form of you know the the graphic novel study really well done um it's something to have if you're looking to write comics and look at how comics are written and look at how you can tell a story and the visual medium itself as a study of how to nail and stick a landing. Mm. Maybe not so much. Um, yeah, there's there's this is probably the best version of a lot of these characters, which is also should tell you something about how these characters are written in general. But it's also one of those things of saying, look at them in the context in which they're being written. If these are the versions of the characters in the 1950s, you're going to have to suffer through somebody saying, ooh, but what if I use this word now? Because it's the 50s and it's different and I'm allowed to get away with it because it was accepted at the time, quote unquote. You're going to get one of those or two. And that's just, I mean, you got those in Watchmen too. Mm -hmm. So it's, and that's one of those things where it's like, you're going to get it in a period piece. It's going to be there. It's going to be a thing. It's not pretty. I think the fact that it bothers you is good because it was meant to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the takeaway. I don't think it was done. I don't think Darwin Cook was going out of his way to <laughs> get away with saying slurs that he secretly wished he could. Yeah. I think this was a... Yeah, this was an uncomfortable thing that was said at this time, and it's going to inform you about these characters. Yeah, it doesn't uh, dwell in it. Yeah, it, it it never beats the dead horse. You get one of each of those words, and that's it. And I think that is, if you're going to have those in the comic, if you, if you just have to, that's how you do it. Okay. You only get one. <laughs> you know, it, it you get is, one. It is and done to it. effect. There's no question. Yeah. That. Whether or not it was needed up for debate i i could have done with or without those but they worked and they were effective in their in their own right and i think you're absolutely right in that in those respects for a lot of those things all right and i think that about wraps up my thoughts and it sort of felt like those are your closing statements as well yeah this is again i will say this this is a good comic to have if you're a dc fan yeah this is this is and also just a fan of comics in general. This is a well-written comic in terms of showing things on the page, how lettering can be done for effect, how visuals can be done to be poetic and uh artistic mm-hmm. and to show visual theme uh theming elements. This is a really good comic. Whether or not it is a great comic in a holistic sense for you, is going to be up to you as a reader and what you're looking for. DC Universe is eight bucks. This is two evenings of reading. Oh, yeah. Yes. 
I I couldn't stop reading it because I I thought it was well done. I was like, you know, of all the graphic novels and retellings I've heard I, I've read in recent years, this is probably one of the better ones. I just kept going like I want to see how this happens. I knew how it ended. Like I've seen that movie five six times. I know how it ends. I wanted to see how it was done originally, and honestly, this is better than the movie. The movie may be more enjoyable because it's less mired in questionable content that it that the the source material has. But I think it also is more diluted. It's a the movie's a fun attempt to truncate a really complex story. Agreed. And so I mean, had Darwin Cook written this now, this would have been DC's Black Label. Yeah. And even, I think, I don't think anything would have changed either. I think this just would have been, hey, this is kind of an adult version of this comic. It's not necessarily because there's sex and violence and blood and gore, but this is a weirdly almost rated R comic. Mm-hmm. It's it's like hard PG-13 in some ways. Yeah, this is... <laughs> This is like the Daredevil series. This is as rated R as the Daredevil series is. That 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 series is not mired in lots of swearing and violent, like very gory violence and sex. It is very dark in content and message. This is this is a this is a comic you would read as a high school senior. Yeah. You know, or your first college course in graphic novel, you know, storytelling. I would put this, The Dark Knight Returns, and, and God Loves, Man Kills in the same category. Um, they don't all have to be dark and sweary and gross, but they can be. I don't know if I believe in 60s era Kennedy politics this much, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is kind of what this comic is about. And, and, I, and I agree with you. I mean, I, I think I've changed my perspective on some of the, the aspects that I mentioned before at the start of the podcast with this episode. Um Based off of your your analysis, and I agree with you, I think there are some moments here where it's just like, mm, just miss the mark. And, hey man, it happens. Yeah. It's good. I would pick it up just to look at it. I mean, would you would you recommend it if somebody asked you if they should read it? I think there's the key word, should. And the answer is yes. Read it and engage with it. I don't know whether I will say that it is that it is good, but I do think it is something you should read and you should like scrape your teeth against. I think I think you're I think that's a good that's a good way of saying it is this is important for a lot of reasons and you'll get you'll get different things out of it I think depending on who you are and I think that's 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 what good art should be mm-hmm. is subjective and and causes you to think um I know we we usually do recommendations so I'm going to have a short one here I just started watching the Agent Carter television show on Disney plus um boy howdy Lots of 1940s, 1950s sexism, um, but also Agent Carter and Jarvis being buds is fun, and I enjoy it. And I think it's it's a well-shot television show, and it was on ABC, if I remember correctly. Um, check it out. I think it's fun. Haley Atwell is a, is a good actress in my book, and I think the guy who plays Jarvis is really fun, and I think also a very good actor. Um it's worth just checking out if you haven't seen a, a, a comic book procedural show. And on my end, I'm going to recommend a game called Golf Peaks. Uh, no relation to Twin Peaks. It's basically chess puzzles the golf game. 
so like hey here's a little uh grid of you're trying you're you start off with the ball here you're trying to get to that location uh just get it in the hole and you've got like five or however many cards that are like movement things of okay this is like putt two uh squares or chip one and then uh go another two and it's playing those cards and figuring out the right way of moving through the space to end up at the uh just at the hole it is it is a chess puzzle except with a golf theme and a lot of little mechanics getting introduced as you go through and it's just very very fun little bite-sized stuff and it's oh it is both on itch.io and it's also just on the at google play store and i imagine the app store as well it's like three bucks nice very very different recommendations <laughs> uh but that's what you come to the podcast for is weird geopolitical analysis of comic books and also me not reciting the 68 plus references that are in this comic um thank you all for listening to this we're going to get back to our regularly scheduled reading very soon and uh we hope to uh see you next time dc detectives can be found on soundcloud and itunes to stay in the know check out our facebook twitter and instagram Darwin Cook's work made Matt and I remember why we started this podcast. The work was rich for discussion and debate, and we felt re-energized to return to our coverage of the characters we loved so much. It was time to get back to the grind, and we were going to do so with smiles on our faces.